You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans 14 is where we're at. And as you flip there, you can stand up and we'll read the whole chapter together. It says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats, or excuse me, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account to himself to God, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine nor to do anything to which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray over this message today entitled, The Law of Liberty and Love. Lord, as we come to this passage dealing with Christian freedoms, Christian liberties, things that uh, we are able to do because of the gospel, Lord, would you just uh, build a deep foundation and, and establish and remind us of the deep foundation of agape love, of Christian love. As you were driving home so hard in Romans chapter 12 that our love should not be with hypocrisy and that we're to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Lord, as you told us last week, as Kevin spoke, that we're to owe no one anything except to love one another, and that when we love one another, the law is fulfilled. Lord, that we might love our neighbor as ourself today. We pray for your Holy Spirit to speak, Lord. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would bring freedom and bring maturity uh, to the weaker brother. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would bring sensitivity and love and compassion to the stronger brother. And Lord, that you would be glorified in the way Calvary Chapel of Crook County uses and celebrates and worships you through the freedoms you've given us. We bless you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. The issue of Christian liberty or Christian freedoms is always confronting the believer and the church who tries to please God with their behavior. What can a believer do and what should he or she not do socially or on a personal level? 
Well, there's been a lot of different opinions in the past. In the late 1800s, choirs that wore robes were considered worldly and carnal by some Christians. Or a Christian from the South would be repelled by a co-ed swim party, while at the same time, the Northern brother would be offended to watch the Southern brother light up a cigar. A Christian from Canada would think it would be worldly for a woman to wear a wedding ring, while a Christian from Europe would think it was almost immoral for a wife not to wear a symbol of her status. A Christian man from Denmark cringes over British Bible school students who play football, while at the same time, British students would look down on the Dane for smoking a pipe. As Charles Spurgeon was criticized for riding in a first-class compartment on a train between speaking engagement, a man came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here? I am riding in the back in third class, taking care of God's money. While Spurgeon replied, I am here in first class, taking care of the Lord's servant. I thought it was funny, but <laughs> probably because I travel a lot and I'm always trying to schmooze my way into first class. Two of the most famous uh, Christians and pastors in the Victoria era England were uh, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. These guys were mighty men, mighty preachers of the gospel. They were friends and they fellowshiped together and they would often share each other's pulpits. One day they had a disagreement. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because Parker attended the theater. Spurgeon, however, smoked cigars, which many would condemn. And as Spurgeon was confronted on it, he found no scripture forbidding him to do so. And so he continued on practicing that liberty. Now, unfortunately, there was division, but beautifully, towards the end of their lives, the two reconciled and resolved the issue to one another, uh, having fellowship once again and again, sharing each other's pulpits. We often hear of rules like no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no gambling, no going to the movies. No playing cards, no listening to rock, rock music. Hey, no sports activities attended or even watched on Sundays. Hey, no jeans, no sneakers in church, no shirts without a collar for boys and men. No slacks, no hats in church, no ornate jewelry, no makeup for women within the worship services. These are statements that many Christian schools and churches make their members sign if they were to attend there. Amen. But God is not pleased with these self-righteous opinions or the divisions within his church that we tend to make. We need to learn to grow up and to become mature in the gospel. Now, while the Bible does have many clear commands or what are known as universal sins, it, can, it can be quite ambiguous about many issues. There are gray issues, gray areas, or non-essentials that have always been the source of disputes and conflict amongst God's people, causing division within the church to the church's shame. Now, we can treat these do's and don't do's like immature children. We can treat the can't-dos with criticism and a judgmental attitude, while the can't-dos treat the can-do people with judgment and condemnation. There's an old poem that said, To live above with saints above, that would be the glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. You know, we are a church made up of people that are in the process of sanctification. None of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. And if you're looking for the perfect church, I hate to tell you, I'm warning you, this isn't it. All right? I'm here for one thing, and so that automatically disqualifies us. But if you do perhaps find that perfect church, I encourage you not to join it because you'll ruin it. As the proverb says, where there are many, uh, where the stalls are clean, there are no oxen. But it also says, oh man, there's a lot of strength that comes from oxen. Look around, just people here. Christians, forgiven people in the process of being set apart for the Lord. And we're probably going to wrong or offend each other at some point. So what principles should guide our actions? 
Sometimes we're criticized by those principles, by others. We feel critical, critical towards somebody else's behavior. But Romans 14 will help us answer these questions. First of all, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. I may have said Romans 12, I didn't mean that. Romans 14, 1. It says, receive one. First of all, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. We're to receive somebody into Christian fellowship and befriend them and be hospitable towards somebody. Sadly, alienation is an aspect uh, today within the church over issues that are secondary, non-issues or peripheral issues. And we can so quickly become standoffish with those from a different background. You got to remember, if God has not made it a barrier to fellowship, we should not make it a barrier either. We're to receive people and bring people into the brotherhood, into the fellowship, and specifically the brother in verse 1 who is weak in the faith. Weak in the faith. The idea of weakness has to do with the believer's conscience. <clears throat> do they have a sensitive conscience? Do they have a strong conviction in a certain area? The scriptures are clear that there are some areas within Christian freedoms that we will not always see eye to eye on. Areas that are not forbidden in scripture that some people may find offensive, but others may find pleasurable are called liberties or freedoms. The strong ones can often, or excuse me, some people think that they are strong ones because they may abstain from something, but the Bible actually says that the abstainers are the weak ones. And it's not a sin to be weak. This is not a diss here. But there is opportunity for growth among the weaker brother. Just as if you were physically weak, you, you need to grow out and, or gr work out and grow in strength and becoming strong. Exercising your faith in this case, becoming spiritually strong and growing and strengthening. Dr. Constable is a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he says that the weak in faith have an overly sensitive conscience about doing things that are permissible for a Christian. A sensitive conscience is a good thing, but it can sometimes lead to a person lead a person to restrict his or her freedom unnecessarily. Paul urged the stronger Christian who appreciated the extent of his freedom to accept the weaker brother as an equal. Nevertheless, he was not to accept him and then condemn him mentally, much less publicly, for his scruples or for his offenses or for his weakness. And so there are some with their sensitive convictions. They are vegetarians only. We'll see in this text. There are some who do not allow their children to play video games or to listen to rock music or any type of music, music if it's not played on Caleb. Some people have a no smoking placard put on their garage door just to make it perfectly clear we do not smoke within this household. Some people don't allow card playing or tattoos or piercings or the internet within their home. They have no TV within their home, feeling that it is wicked and immoral as in totality, that dancing should be forbidden. No waltzing or doing the jitterbug. That birth control is sinful. You know, having convictions or a sensitive conscience is a good thing. Until one becomes self-righteous or until division comes within that area. I love what Pastor Bob Caldwell from Calvary Chapel Boise said when I was listening to him this week. He said, respect the level of a person's understanding or knowledge about truth and the response of their conscience to that understanding. Because your conscience is a gift, your excuse me, your conscience is a gift from God and can moderate your decisions about right and wrong predicated by how much truth you have. If you have limited truth, your conscience is going, to be gen is going to genuinely respond to something based upon that knowledge or lack of knowledge. We all come from different backgrounds. Man, we've got former Baptists in here. We've got assembly of, Assemblies of God folks that come to our church. We've got Foursquare. We've got Lutheran. You know, we've got all kinds of backgrounds. Church of Christ. We all have different backgrounds. We've all been taught Bible studies. And, and we've all, you know, we've all been up brought up through different styles of music or different ways of teaching or different standards of dress that you might wear to church. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And so it's okay to be sensitive 
to the different people's convictions. It's good to respect their, uh, their knowledge of truth as they are growing and we're all growing. And as we come together to Calvary Chapel of Crick County and together we come to the word and we rightly divide it and we pull it apart and we apply the gospel of grace, we're all going to grow in different ways and in different areas. This weakness that we read about as uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary says, uh, it's, it's not the one that's weak in truth believed. It's him whose faith wants that firmness and breath, breath which would raise him above small scruples. And he says, don't bring these people. He says, bring them in, but don't bring them in with the intent to fight with them and to have disputes and fighting over things that are non-essentials. Can God make a rock so big that he cannot move it? Well, let's just get into that. What about the use of the charismata within a church service and spiritual gifts? Some churches have divided over the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Or worship, should it be on Saturday or Sunday? Should we wear a suit or a dress to church versus jeans, shorts, and flip-flops? And we all know we get a little bit cash around here, especially in the summertime. What about no music versus music with drums versus acapella? You know, it's interesting as people don't like the, the drums and the bass and the guitar. They, Let's just go back to hymns. Let's just sing a mighty fortress is our God. And then as you study church history, Martin Luther wrote a mighty fortress is our God from the tune of an old bar song. And so you can just picture boom, 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 and the ale slashing everywhere. And it's like, goodness gracious. We should just hum like the monks. Did you know that the monks, okay? As J.B. Phillips says, welcome a man whose faith is weak, but not with the idea of arguing over his scruples. Or the ESV, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions or disputable matters. There's another poem that says, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. And sadly, that's many of our positions within the church. But we're warned by Paul not to welcome a younger believer or a weaker believer into the fellowship with the intent to straighten him out in regard to his weak conscience or for the sake to just argue with him. St. Augustine said, man, in the essentials, I don't know if he said man at the beginning. <laughs> Dude, in essentials, we must have unity. In non-essentials, we must have liberty. But in all things, we must have charity or love. The essentials would be things such as the inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures. The deity of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Trinity, as Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will surely die in your sins. Salvation, that it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not faith plus anything, but faith alone that saves us. There needs to be room to accept other bodies who, thinks, who see things differently. You know, perhaps they use the gifts of the Spirit in another way. But you know what? Dividing over these things, it's not good. We are unit, united in the essentials. We have liberty in the non-essentials and charity in all things. Two examples of scruples that we see here in Romans chapter 14 or disputable things are given. First of all, in the area of food, all right? Jewish meat versus veggies, in a sense, was what was being argued over there uh, in, uh, in Rome. And secondly, days, days of the week, special days, special days to worship on, diet and days. And so let's tackle, first of all, the scrupulous subject of food. Now, this was a big issue. There were a lot of laws in the Mosaic, uh, in the Mosaic sense dealing with clean and unclean foods. But the gospel had brought great joy in liberating from these strict diets that now a Jew could actually, you know, order the surf and turf platter at McGrath's, you know, or get a, a bacon sundae at Burger King, you know, a little bacon with my vanilla ice cream and chocolate and caramel. It's delicious. I just want you to know. It'll be your last meal, but it'll be a good meal. And yes, it's actually a meal in and of itself. But imagine a Jewish person getting saved and no longer going to fellowship within the synagogue. 
but they go to this new church, all right? Or imagine being a Jew that lives in the area of, of Ephesus, all right? And, and you no longer go to the synagogue, but you go to this church filled with Jews that have become Christians and pagans that had just, last week they were over worshiping at the Temple of Diana, you know, and now they're in here at Calvary Chapel of Ephesus, you know, and they're worshiping. And then after the, after the service, you know, we've got the potluck time. And, you know, and, and one guy brings crab, you know, and another, another guy brings, you know, lettuce wrapped carrots or something like that. And, and all of a sudden there's this big blow up and everybody's screaming at each other. I can't believe he brought crab to the feast. You know, he's going to hell for sure, you know. And then over on this end, well, who are you to judge, you goody two-shoes? And pretty soon there's this great fight that would happen. Who are these uptight guys? Well, who are these pagans? And the argument breaks out, and the division within the church occurs. In verse 2, it says, One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The distinguishing here between the strong and the weak, you have the strong would be those who had a deep understanding of the gospel and understanding the freedoms therein and the rules that were abolished through the gospel. And he might sincerely take to heart Genesis 1, 29 through 30, where God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast on the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there's life. I've given every green herb. Or... Perhaps he just really loves Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles are getting saved and they're being taught the gospel and Peter's up on the roof, on the roof in Jaffa and he has a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven and in it were all kinds of forfeited animals in the earth, wild beasts and creeping thing and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was, object was taken up into heaven. Or perhaps the strong brother, watch out for the ladybug, it's going to get you. Perhaps the strong brother uh, would remember Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, when Jesus calls the multitudes to himself and says, hear and understand that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. So that would be the stronger guy, you know, and, and strong in the faith, strong in the understanding of the gospel. Not necessarily a big compliment. The, the weaker brother, it's, it's good too, in a sense. The other weaker brother would be the one who has a moral doubt about things, really sensitive, has a qualm or an ethical misgiving, and would eat only vegetables just so that they never be suspect of eating meat that was unclean or that had been offered to idols. Is verse 3 says, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Each camp, whether you're the strong or the weak, you can quickly go into sin in one way or another. The strong person often has scorn and derides the weak brother for being a pansy or a goody two-shoes. Or why don't you grow up? And they can fall into sin in that area. Being a word I learned this week supercilious, a word that means from the eyebrow, being haughty, kind of like, don't you know? Probably hard to see with my new big glasses on. Don't you know, okay? Just raising your brow to people, scorning them. Well, the weak brother, he also has his bent to sin in judging and condemning and criticizing the strong person. Does he have no morals is he seriously wearing his hat in church, you know? And, and you can just become critical or you can become judgmental to the point in self-righteousness saying that that person's not even saved and is going to hell. But as the J.B. Phillips translation puts it, the meat eater should not despise the vegetarian, nor should the vegetarian condemn the meat eater. Is this really even an issue in Prineville? I mean, okay. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, says that the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, now let's just pause real quick. Do you think if the Spirit is expressly saying something, something we should listen to? Probably. I mean, there is some emphasis here from the Holy Spirit. It says that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. 
And you would think that the ones that has their conscience seared with a hot iron would be the one that's like, hey, it's cool to eat the bacon sundae at BQ or DQ, whatever, you know. Uh, but actually, the one that has their conscience seared, verse 3 says that they're forbidding people to marry. They're commanding to abstain from foods that God said should be received with thanksgiving by those who, now here's, it's people who believe. It's people that know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's sanctified, it's set apart by the word of God and prayer. Dr. Constable said, the person who eats should not view himself as superior, even though he's right. Or look down on his extremely sensitive brother with the condescending attitude And the weaker brother should not judge the more liberal Christian as unacceptable to God either. And why is all of this? Why should one not judge the other and the other not judge the one? Because as the end of verse 3 says, God has received him. Now remember, we are talking about conscience things. We are talking about non-essential things. We're not talking about universal sin. We're not talking about doctrinal truths, all right? We're talking about liberties and freedoms, things that are gray areas in the scripture, things that are even allowed and spoken of to be allowed within the scripture. We're talking about believers here, people who God has received. That means they're going to heaven, means they're born again it means they're justified by grace through faith in christ alone and so there's to be a yielding to one another in love why well because god has received him or her why not condemn them well because god has received them they are brothers and sisters saved by grace just like you are verse four goes on to say who are you to judge another servant To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. This is a brother. This is a fellow servant of our master. The word servant speaks of somebody who is busy being about their master's business. This is a believer. This is a co-laborer for the gospel, whether he's a weak guy or a strong guy, either way. But let's be honest, if we were all busy doing what we should be doing, that is serving the Lord and furthering the kingdom, we'd have a whole less time being critical of another brother or judgmental towards another sister. How quickly we fall into sin of gossip and slander and criticism when we're idle for the kingdom. When it comes to a believer who enjoys or abstains from liberties afforded by him from the gospel, don't decide his or her spirituality based on that. Don't condemn this believer because his master will sustain him. Now, judgment is spoken of here in both of these verses, in three and in four. And the word judge is krino in the Greek. It means to condemn somebody, to condemn somebody really to hell, to damn somebody because they are doing this or that freedom. They are going to that form of entertainment, going to the theater. They are smoking a cigar. They are having a glass of wine. They are having a beer. They are eating vegetables. They are not eating vegetables. And damn them for doing it. It should not be so. The scriptures speak clearly on something. That we are to relay to one another things in loving ways. If a brother is caught in an adulterous affair, you don't just let it slide. But you go and you confront that brother. If any one of you is overtaken in any trespass, we're told, you who are spiritual, go and restore that brother in a spirit of gentleness. All right? We confront one another in love. That is not crino. But we've all heard it, and we've even said it, when we're confronted in our sin, what do we say? It's our favorite memory verse from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not. Don't you know judge not? And we've even said it, haven't we? And we take that verse severely out of context. What that means is condemn not. Don't act like the judge who sends people to hell because you are not him. 
And with the same judgment that you use, that judgment, we can read it together, the judgment you judge, verse 2 of Matthew 7, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. That is why when we confront one another in our sin, we do it in love and in a spirit of gentleness because we know that we have a judge. And how will he judge us? By grace, in a spirit of love, and a spirit of gentleness as believers. And in that very same passage, the judge not passage, you have in verse 6 that we're not to give what is holy to the dogs or cast our pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and tear you in pieces. How are you to know who's a dog and who's a swine if you don't utilize discernment to judge thus? We need to have discernment. Within the same chapter, you go down to verse 16. You will know false teachers by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good, bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Well, I'm just not into the fruit judging business because judge not. No, you are too. There are false teachers out there. Wolves coming into the church seeking to devour people. Use discernment. Use discernment. There is to be that level, but there's not to be a condemnation of one another. In James chapter 4, verse 11, don't speak evil of another brother. All right? This is a brother in the Lord, born again. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And within the same passage in Romans chapter 4, don't judge the, the Lord's servants, all right? Don't even worry about them, actually, as they're in liberty, all right? Again, we're not talking about universal sin. We're talking about liberties that the gospel affords a Christian. Don't worry about their liberty. As it says at the end of verse 4, he will be made to stand. He will endure. He will persevere. And God is able to make him stand. As Eric Alexander said, the reason why we need to avoid judging, first of all, it's the judgment on the wrong issues so often. It's peripheral, non-essential, non-central issues. Secondly, by the wrong people judging, as the Phillips translation says, after all, who are you to judge? That means it's not up to you. You're the wrong person. And judgment at the wrong time. In the end of chapter 14, we're going to see that judgment will take place before the judgment seat of God. One man wisely said, I will not have to answer for the position my brother held, but I will have to answer for the position I held on the position he held. Did you get that? You're not going to be judged for the position he holds, but you will be judged on the position you hold on the position he holds. Are you being gracious? Are you allowing for Christian freedom? Are you allowing that person to eat and to drink the things that the gospel affords them? That's the issue of diet. We move now from verse, verse 5 into another scrupulous subject of days. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let him be fully convinced in his own mind. And we've seen this, right, in our culture. One person esteeming one day above another. One person may so appreciate that the Sabbath is on a Saturday, and they've really been impacted in the foreshadowing of Jesus being the Sabbath rest so they do a special time of worship on a Saturday. Is that not beautiful? Is that not awesome? But there is a sect within our culture, Seventh-day Adventists, who not all, but some or most, would say that you must worship on Saturday and that anybody who worships on a Sunday is of the devil, that they're idol worshipers, that they're, uh, and that they've actually worshiped and taken the mark of the beast, okay? And you see that where the error occurred, you know, where it's just like, man, praise God that you're worshiping on a Saturday. That is really cool. And I know some great Seventh-day Adventists. I really do. I can name them to you. I've got their number in my cell phone. We've had great times of worship together. It's awesome. But I've also been part of a church 
where a Seventh-day Adventist prophet had come in every Sunday, and after service, he would go around to people and tell them they're going to hell because they were here worshiping Jesus on a Sunday. You see where the error occurred. And then the day came when he stood up in the midst of everybody and said, you're all going to hell because you're not as righteous as me who, who worship on a Saturday. Okay, problem. And you all know where the problem lies. Another person recognizes that the early church and the New Testament give us the example of changing our meeting time to the first day of the week to celebrate what? Pastor's wife knows it. The resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity, so much so that Jews who were saved, that were steeped and had a deep foundation of the law, now said, this is so big, I'm not worshiping in this great gathering on Saturdays anymore. Boom, we're over here on Sundays now, and it's a big deal. And some people, us included, we now worship on Sundays, or we're this third group that Paul talks about here. Others esteem every day alike. And I would say that's where I land, probably a lot of you. Man, it's not Sunday isn't it. Sunday isn't it. We get to worship Jesus and even gather on a Monday, on a Wednesday night 242 group. Someday we may have a Saturday night prayer meeting or a Saturday night you know, worship service or Bible study. We might even have a service full on, full blown. We might teach the Bible on a Saturday. Praise God. The error is when one of these groups, even if it's the Sunday worshipers, condemn the others for the days they hold as special or if a group claims to be more righteous because they do or do not meet on a certain day of the week or year. As I was serving down at the Oasis, I was condemned for celebrating Easter, Resurrection Sunday, as we call it. You know, we have the freedom to celebrate Resurrection Sunday and maybe even call it Easter. Other people offended that there might be Christmas trees in the church. You know what? Christmas tree just looks like it's got snow on it, all right? Deal with it. It's pretty. It kind of reminds us of the outdoors. We're not worshiping, you know, Balak. I can't even remember. I know what it is, but, you know, there's some backgrounds with all of that. As Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul was defending grace big time to the region of Galatia. And he says, now, after you uh, have known God, or rather been known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements, which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored in vain. There's a problem when the days that we meet or the days that we do not meet is where we find our righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's how I'm saved. I hope you have the same hymn singing from your heart. But let each of you, whether it's you worship on a Saturday, praise God, you worship on a Sunday, that's the big gathering for you. You worship every day of the week and you're at every stinking little Bible study you can get your hands on during the week. Let each be fully convinced in their own mind, we're told. And that's a good thing too. It's good to be fully convinced in your own mind. What we do not see in Romans chapter 14 is indecision on a subject in an effort to keep the peace. Well, I just don't know, and I'm not even going to look into it. No, it's good to look into it. It's good to know the word. Do you guys remember Romans chapter 12, verse 2? And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It is good to know our word. It is good to know our gospel. It is good to be fully convinced in our mind. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Verse 6, he who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. You want to worship on December 25th that Jesus Christ was born, even though he technically wasn't born until like late April? Praise God. Do it. And then in April, worship God that he came down and became flesh. Do it again. Why not worship him every day for doing that? The great condescension. Praise God. 
But whether you observe the day, do it to the Lord. If you don't observe the day, verse 6, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Something that you learn as a Bible student is to circle repeated words and phrases because there's meaning in it. There's message in it. To the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let no one judge you in the food that you eat or the drink that you drink. Universal sin of drunkenness, don't get drunk with wine. Universal freedom of having a glass of wine or a beer. Don't let anybody judge you in that. We'll get more into sensitivity in that area later on in the chapter. But don't let anybody condemn you or damn you. Don't you dare be condemned. All right? Who is he who condemns Romans chapter 8? It's not Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives to make intercession for you. As we go on there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, or don't let anybody judge you in regarding to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are all a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the feasts, of all the Sabbaths. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. Or worship of angels, intruding into those things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up in his, flesh, in his fleshly mind. You guys, if you begin to get legalistic to the point where this freedom or your sensitive conscience causes you to damn or condemn somebody, you've crossed into the error field. But when an individual is observing or not observing to the Lord, eating or not eating with thanks... They're in a good place. You will see a theme within our liberties that in whatever we're doing, it's to be done in obedience to the scripture with a thankful heart to the glory of God as we read to the Lord. We are created to be worshipers in everything we do and we cannot be worshiping when we've encroached into the universal sin category. You just can't worship God in your sexual immorality or in your adultery. People try to do it. They're being deceived by the enemy. But you can worship God in the universal liberties areas, the things that we've been afforded by the gospel of grace. One man may sit down with his veggie bowl and thank the Lord. Another guy sits down with his tri-tip surf and turf platter, and he gives thanks to God. Amen? Not a vegetarian. But if you are, God bless you. If you're a vegan, we pray for you. Just kidding. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink in whatever you do, you guys have it up there. Come on, people. <laughs> Don't act like you didn't bring your Bibles. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. The glory of God. Verse 7, none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself, which is a convicting verse. Because a lot of us, we are all about building the kingdom of self. It's all about self. It's all about me. You got to watch Brian Regan. He's one of the funniest comedians, but he talks about the me monster. The me monster. It's all about me. And someone's trying to tell a great story of some great trip that they went or a great jump they did on their skis. And you just got to interrupt them and tell them about the great jump you did on your skis because you're better than them. That's us, man. We're all about me. I'm better than you. What I do is better than what you do. And I live for myself. I die for myself. My kingdom's for myself. What I do for recreation is about myself. My week is for myself. My Sunday is for myself. My Monday night's for myself. Self, 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 self. The me monster kind of got in there a little bit. But if you are a Christian... The gospel confronts your kingdom of self and tears it down by putting you in the company of community and other Christians who are going to rub you the wrong way, who are going to offend you, who you are going to need to bear with, who you are going to need to forgive, who you are need to be uh, long-suffering with. Because he's chiseling down your kingdom so that his kingdom can rise. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies even to ourselves. As 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all, that those who would live should live no longer to themselves. It's not about you anymore, but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. 
Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. As Jameson Fawcett in Brown's commentary said, the truth is that we neither live or die as self-contained units. At every turn, life links us to God, and when we die, we come face to face with him. If you are going to have a beer, you have a beer to God. If you are going to go to the theater, you go to the theater for God. Now, if that theater encroaches into sinful place, it's good to leave. Or if your beer is borderlining onto a sin, it's good to stop. It's good to move on. All right? You're doing it to the Lord. If you're living, you're living to the Lord. If you're dying, you're dying to the Lord. And it's interesting here that Paul brings up life and death during a subject that seems to deal with smaller things than life and death. Why does he do that? It's interesting that he brings up two absolutely different ends of the spectrum, which is life and death. Two totally different ends. And that life can be glorifying to God and that death in any way, shape, or form can be glorifying to God. And that liberty and freedom... In, in non-essential things can be glorifying to God and conviction and sensitive conscience, which can often seem at the opposite end of the spectrum, can be glorifying to God. And these are true Christian freedoms. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and rose and live again, that he might be the Lord of both the de- of the dead and the living. The grand object of his death was to acquire this absolute lordship over the redeemed, both in their living and in their dying, as his of right, Fawcett and Brown say. I love that. They're living and they're dying. He's redeemed it all to be something that's glorifying to him. God is in the business. You read Ephesians chapter 1. He's in the business of redeeming all things back to himself. Why do you judge your brother, verse 10? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this word judgment seat of Christ, it's the word bima in the Greek, the bima seat. And it's a judgment of reward. And it speaks, it's the same language of the Olympic Games judgment, where, you know, you got the one and the two and the three, I guess it's one's up top, two and three down, and, you know, who did the best, they're up top. There's a judgment, there's reward, there's medals given. That will happen to the Christians. We will go through the beam of seat judgment and those things that we did for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom, we will receive rewards for in that day. There's a lot of different types of rewards, but we know the crowns that we're given in Revelation, we cast it all before the Lord and say, Lord, it was all you. The glory belongs to you. It's yours alone. But there's a judgment time where we're judged based on our, our life here on earth. There's another judgment in the scripture we see in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 called the Great White Throne Judgment. And there in the Great White Throne Judgment, it's a judgment to the non-believers from the beginning of time who rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and their names were not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And anyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast into hell, the lake of fire, for all eternity where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the Great White Throne Judgment. Christian, here today... You're not going there. If you've been justified by the blood of Jesus and the finished work that he's done on the cross, Christian, you will not be at that judgment being judged. You will be at the Bema seat judgment, which is still a great and awesome judgment where God will get glory and you will receive rewards for your life here on earth. But notice verse 10, we will all appear there. We will all appear for reward whether you're the weak brother who has a sensitive conscience or you're a stronger brother, a more liberal brother, you will appear before the throne as well. Verse 11, it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. And Philippians chapter 2 prophesies of that day as well, where Jesus, who lived that life of humility and laying his needs and his wants and his desires down, he gives his life for us. And then he's exalted to glory where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. You don't need to have a a terror of that judgment in the sense of you're gonna go to hell. That's not gonna happen for you, Christian. 
but you will have a holy terror, as 2 Corinthians 5 says of this time, because you have one life to live, and it will soon be passed, and only what you've done for Jesus will last. One life, one life to live. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Can you underline this part? But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. In all of these things that we have liberties, I mean, some of us, we get a little bent out of shape on other things. Some of us, other things, there's a whole list of things that could really bum us out, but it's time to resolve it, all right? Those of you that are weaker brothers, dive in and keep studying the gospel. Look at the non-essential things. Are they really make it or break it cases? Are you having grace in those areas? Those of you that are stronger, you need to resolve in the second part of this verse, verse 13, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. And Paul goes on for the rest of the chapter to really exhort the stronger brother. It's up to you like a big brother to care for, to be sensitive to, to yield to the weaker brother, okay? To yield to each other. We're to be so careful as strong, and I say we, I'm, I'm the weaker brother in some areas. Those of you in whatever area it is, if you're the stronger, you need to be so careful not to stumble or influence somebody to do something against their conscience, we're going to read real quick 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is like a parallel passage on liberties. And it's concerning things that were offered to idols. And so instead of idol worship meat, which probably doesn't offend a ton of you right now, insert whatever liberty you struggle with or you're sensitive to or you're strong in. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And just remember... And whatever issue, that's liberty that's creeping into your mind, you think you've got it all figured out. You've got all knowledge. You've got all the stories in the world to back up your position and, and that you would make it even essential. But the Bible hasn't gone there. We all got knowledge, but watch out lest your knowledge would puff you up. Let your love bring about edification. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, or the going to the theater, or the smoking the cigar, or the having the microbrew, or whatever it might be, it says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there's no other God but one. Even if there are so-called gods, lowercase g, whether in heaven or earth, there's many gods, many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there's not in everyone that knowledge. Everyone's not there, all right? If you're the stronger, stronger brother, everyone's not there. So you've got to be sensitive. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. Neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered by idols? Now let me pause for a second. In this text, it seems to be pointing to a location and sensitivity rather than a total abstinence for all times and all places for the rest of your life globally. What we read of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a blatant lack of concern for another brother's conscience. You've got a guy that's eating in an idol's temple. He's got a lobster rib thing on, and he's got idol meat juice all over his face. And the wheat guy's walking by and is stumbled by that. There's no sensitivity in the brother that we read of here. And because of your knowledge, shall that weak brother perish now? And here's his worth. For whom Christ died but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now that final verse kind of opens up this paradox here. How in the world can you have any liberties at all and yet have that closing verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Can one walk in any liberties and at the same time never cause his brother to stumble? 
If you do your arithmetic, does love equal always abstaining from all liberties at all time, lest there's some chance of somebody being offended or even put out a little bit? Or does to partake of that liberty, drink, smoke, go there, listen to, pierce that, whatever, always equal destroying that person, okay? I don't see that as being consistent with the all of scriptures. And so we're to resolve this, all right? And here's the deal. Those that are strong, be sensitive. And those that are weak, don't condemn and don't criticize. They've been granted the freedom to do those liberties and don't rob them of the freedom that Christ has paid for. As you look at the outline of Romans chapter 14, you look at verses 1 through 13, and if you've got a pen with you, just mark on the side of your margin, verses 1 through 13, you've got a person binding the conscience of another. And you know what? You shouldn't do it. All right? Verses 14 through 21, you've got causing somebody to stumble. And you know what? You shouldn't do it. And then you have verses 22 and 23 at the end. An individual's faith. And that's what it all boils down to. We're going to speedily go through the rest of the chapter. In verses 14 through 23, we have no longer the law of liberty, but now we move into the law of love. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And you remember the words of Jesus there, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man that defiles him. And then the Pharisees, or the disciples said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Sometimes that's offensive to the legalists. It's offensive to the, the, you know, the religious to have a saying like that. Verse 15, yeah, that's true. But if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now underline that phrase, the one for whom Christ died, or circle it. And it's there that we see your brother's worth, his value. As Olsa Hazen said, I think that's German, the worth of even the poorest and weakest brother cannot be more emphatically expressed than by the words, for whom Christ died. Therefore, don't let your good be spoken of as evil, verse 16. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating, it's not drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the order there is important. You are righteous when you place your faith in Jesus. When you are justified, you then have a peace over your heart. You enter into the peace and the rest of God. And then you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, for when he serves Christ in these things, he is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, isn't that interesting? As a guy is serving Jesus in righteousness and in peace and in joy of the Holy Spirit, he's accepted by God and approved by men. There's the horizontal and the vertical approval. Verse 19, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. Now, I want you to underline the phrase edify another. And notice that there's mutual edification that goes on here. The, the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 says that we're to yield to one another in love. And James tells us that wisdom from above is yielding. There's a mutual edification, or edification between the strong brother and the weak brother. This does not mean that weak people get to make all the rules. And it does not mean that strong people get to make all the rules. This is not a competition. There's no winning or losing between God's people. How do you win? You win by esteeming the other person's need as better than yourself. If you're weak, you esteem the stronger person's need. If you're strong, you esteem the weaker person's need. And you do what somebody I know once did when he condescended and he came down and he humbled himself even to the point of death. Jesus. We live like Jesus and we esteem the other person's needs and sensitivities and desires as better than our own. 
And we lay our lives down for our brothers and we edify one another. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. The apostle sees in whatever tends to violate a brother's conscience, the incipient destruction of God's work. For every converted man is that. He's a work of God. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat, nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Even though, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are helpful for me. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And then Paul says, let not anyone seek his own but each the other's well-being. Verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. John tells us that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. You know, there's something about knowing the gospel and understanding God's grace that brings about more of the liberties. And there's confidence towards God. Verse 23, but if you doubt, you're condemned if you eat because you do not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Man, whether you eat or don't eat, when you meet this day or don't meet this day, do it out of faith. Do it out of a thankful heart. Do it as unto the Lord. Let's have the worship team Come back up. Do the weak people need the strong people? Yeah. Yes. So that they become, can become stronger. Do the strong people need the weak people? Yeah. Yes. So that they can learn humility and how to serve and how to give up their freedoms. To walk as Christ walked. We love the gospel of grace. And it brings about much freedom. Concerning the issue of alcohol, uh, last year about this time we went through an in-depth study of uh, the Christian freedom there and is it okay for a Christian to partake of alcohol and we have it on the church website. Uh, my notes are on there as well and uh, we'll get that easily accessible from the sermon player. Um, you can also search in the search bar alcohol and it'll come right up. But um, if, if you're newer to the body and you're interested in that, I uh, encourage you to listen to it. Go through Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 uh, pretty in-depth, as well as look at um, church history. Uh, so, you know, at Calvary Chapel of Crick County, concerning liberties, we ask that everyone act according to their conscience and according to the word of God when it comes to liberty. Some people, because of past sin, have problems and might need to abstain from whatever liberty for fear of stumbling into an old sinful habit. And praise God. Praise God that people love what Jesus has done for them and they never want to be the old man and they don't even want to go down a path that seems to even resemble that. Praise God. For those who enjoy freedoms with biblical moderation, please use discernment. If you're providing hospitality for someone, use discernment and sensitivity for people that have conscience or addiction issues. It's okay to talk about these things. It's okay as you're having someone over for dinner. Hey, is, you know, we usually have a bottle of wine with our spaghetti. Is it okay with you? Man, you know what? You know, I, I don't drink, but I'm not offended if you do. Great. Or man, I was an alcoholic for 45 years and it's just something, man, I just, ah, it just hurts to even see a bottle of wine. Oh goodness gracious, man, forget it then. Like I'm, it's fine. Let's have water. Let's make some Hawaii's own fruit punch or something, you know? Praise God. I, my mom made that a lot growing up. But it's okay to talk about, hey, you know, we're getting together. Our families, we have a movie night. Okay, hey, what about PG-13? Man, PG-13, can't do it, <laughs> you know? Just makes my, I, I do this, I, I just, not good. I, okay, let's watch Curious George on Netflix, you know? Praise God talk about it you know praise God in conviction worship the Lord for freedom as well give thanks do it for the glory of God in obedience to the scriptures amen let's stand we're going to end with communion and as we take the elements of communion back to our chair you can partake in your own time
And let's praise God for the freedoms that the gospel affords. Because each one of you, in one way or another, you get to love them and you get to enjoy them uh, in, the, in the freedom that he's provided through his obedience. Lord, controversial issue at times, different issues that rub us the wrong way. Lord, some of us have seen the effects of sin and some of us have seen the abuse of uh, some freedoms. And that causes us to, to want to be abstentionist, abstain. And Lord, where that's, that's needed, Lord, just affirm that in our heart. Lord, even today where you would want to bring freedom in area and, and release us from some strict policy that we've made that's just not according to scripture, Lord, then would you do that, God? Lord, for some of us that we've been uh, free, but we've been using that freedom as a license to sin, Lord God, would you bring conviction? Lord, in those areas that are, they're sinful, it's universal sin, and there's not freedom for that. Lord, don't let us be lied to. Don't let us justify that in our hearts, saying there's freedom and grace in that area. Lord, would you bring deep conviction and let your Holy Spirit work repentance in our heart, even right now, Lord. We just confess those sins to you and repent. And we thank you for the blood and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your body being broken for us. We thank you for the liberties that the gospel affords us. We pray that we would love one another. That's, that's the key here. We would love one another in our freedoms and love one another in our convictions and in our conscience. Just thank you, Lord, praise you that uh, this book we have is not a list of rules and do's and don'ts, but it's a story about a person that fulfilled the law completely. And so, Lord, we rest in your righteousness today and bless you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship. Come forward as you're ready and grab some music. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.